This is The One Thing Podcast, and I'm your host, Dr. Adam Rindy. The One Thing Podcast brings together leaders in functional and naturopathic medicine to discuss actionable information that may unlock puzzles in the areas of gut health, brain health, metabolism, and longevity. Please note, these episodes do not replace the opinion of your doctor. They are not intended to diagnose or treat any condition. Please discuss this information with your provider and discuss your own unique personal health history before adapting this information. Please subscribe to our episodes so that you can stay on top of the most current information in these areas of medicine. Hey everybody, welcome to the next episode of the One Thing Podcast. As you can see, this is a episode focused on addiction medicine. I welcome on a colleague and special guest, Dr. Ravi Chandiramani, who is a naturopathic physician with over 15 years of experience working with those struggling with addiction and alcoholism. He's also the founder of Integrative Addiction Medicine, otherwise known as I Am. This is a model that he will speak about in the episode that is an integrative approach towards addiction medicine. We go into a lot of things in this conversation. Um, One of the most potent aspects of this conversation is talking about all the different myths and beliefs behind those who become addicted. We talk about why people have addiction, what is the normal process and flow that leads to addiction and some of the struggles of addiction. We also have a very deep conversation about what it's like to be a caregiver of someone who is addicted or having having an addiction. We talk about the difference between process addictions versus substance addictions. So this is a very important aspect um, and understanding that will help us understand some of the modern addictions and process addictions that we see in today's society. This conversation may be triggering for some. Um, I do think that it's very fair and also complete with just sort of a balanced view towards addiction medicine. Um, Preventing addiction is not what we cover in this topic. This is really focused more towards people who are dealing with addiction and their loved ones who um, are caring for them or walking alongside those who are addicted. In future episodes, we may discuss prevention and genetics and other aspects and also treatment of addiction. But purely, I invite you to sit back and just um, hear what it's like to be in the trenches with some people and patients who are struggling with addiction and really hear from an expert some of the the realities. Um, And I think you'll walk away feeling a better understanding and a whole lot more compassion towards the process of dealing with addiction. So without further ado, welcome to the next episode of the One Thing Podcast. Dr. Ravi, welcome to the One Thing Podcast. I'm delighted to be able to speak with you today. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. You're welcome. Uh, so I've been on a little break from the podcast for about a month, so I'm excited to kind of get back at it and 
start talking about some topics of interest. And today's topic has been something I've thought about um, for since I started the podcast because it's such a big, um, important area of health and society and and so many different levels. So we're talking about addiction um, and yeah, this is her sort of your expertise. Uh, just would love to start off hearing a little bit about how you got involved working in addiction medicine. Um, entirely by accident is the is the answer to the question. <laughs> uh, most most physicians find themselves in this particular field either completely by accident, like like me, or because they have some personal history of addiction, or had somebody in their family who has some personal history of addiction. Um, I was actually intending to do family practice and, um, you know, in the process of building a practice, um, and looking for moonlighting opportunities, I happened upon an ad in the newspaper for something called a medical liaison. I didn't even know what that meant. Mm -hmm. Responded to the ad and met with an individual who was conducting interviews. Uh, and came to find out that they were hiring for a private uh, drug and alcohol treatment facility in Scottsdale and that they needed a physician. And, um, and so it happened that I um, saw the very first patient admitted into that program in 2004 um, and gradually over the course of the next six or nine months or so found myself spending more time at the drug and alcohol treatment facility than I was trying to build an, a, a family practice in, in Scottsdale. And so here we are some 18 years later, some 50,000 patients later. Um, and my practice has, has been exclusively dedicated to this demographic um, in that time. Hmm. And did you, did you have a philosophy going into to your work or was it sort of um, was your philosophy kind of influenced by the facility that was in place? Like how, how did you, like how did you even get started kind of like understanding a framework of how to work with patients? Um, it's a great question. I, I, I knew nothing um, of what I was getting into. Certainly as is the case for most physicians, maybe not now, but you know, when I trained and my mentors trained, um, we had no exposure uh, in medical school to uh, to the treatment of addictive disorders, and um, and so in the early in the early days, very early in my in my training, I depended largely on my mentors who um, had been practicing addiction medicine on an inpatient or outpatient basis uh, here locally in Arizona for uh, for some time, and made themselves. Uh, accessible for for my questions as they came up in real time. And believe it or not, it wasn't uncommon uh, in those first days for me to do a, a, do a history and physical exam and walk into the next room saying, what do I do with mm -hmm. the patient? And having my, my, my mentors say, well, you might try this or you might try that. And, um, and now much later, um, the, the nature of the of the interventions that we use, the pharmacologic interventions that we use, uh, is fairly standard. So, I mean, we're dealing with the same 
um, from from a from a medication standpoint, you're dealing with the same twenty or thirty things. Yeah. Um, and so just having all of that experience now behind me and understanding um, when those particular tools are are uh, best suited for a case. Um, mm-hmm. Now that's kind of root and and secondhand, but it certainly wasn't then. What I did realize very early on, though, was that what I was dealing with was a multifactorial disease process. And, um, and from my, my training as a naturopathic physician, what I knew is that uh, a multifactorial disease process is best managed with a multifaceted treatment strategy. Um, mm-hmm. and, and I also knew from my training that, um, that I would be remiss if I treated every heroin addict uh, the same and every alcoholic the same and, and every methamphetamine or cocaine, or cocaine addict the same. Um, in fact, what I was dealing with was, a, was an individual who um, found their way to this disease process um, through a very individualized journey, through very individualized life circumstances, um, and that that individual required a very individualized, customized treatment strategy. Um, mm-hmm. And that is the essence of, of how we are trained and how, and how we are trained to look at our patients. And so very early on, I recognized that there was an inherent synergism um, between how I was trained and my ability to be effective with these patients. Gotcha. Okay. And so like with the different models out there, um, kind of hearing sort of a, you're alluding to like a biopsychosocial model where it's like, a little bit of individualized treatment direction is is that the model you follow like for treating addiction um or is it yeah is it something else well it's it's kind of a, i mean it's kind of a hybrid it's certainly not this moral model right where you're where you're the reason you're addicted is because you're morally weak and and if you only if you only accepted responsibility and accountability then you could you could find your way out of it Certainly isn't that, and it certainly isn't. Um, I'm not dealing with a Medicare or Medicaid population either, so um, so we don't focus on you know kind of the so- the socio cultural things as as much as as Medicare or Medicaid specific programs would around you know economic inequality and and uh, housing inequality and and these kinds of things. It's probably a combination of a, a biopsychosocial model and um, and kind of a uh, a disease model, right? Uh, an addiction as disease model, which is largely the model espoused by the medical community and certainly the model espoused by the um, the ranking authority for lack of a better term, the American Society of Addiction Medicine. Um, you know, the disease model is, is the model thoroughly espoused there as well. So it's probably a combination. You add to that, to those established models, the, you know, the, the tenets and principles of, of naturopathic medicine. And, and, um, and that's how I practice. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so I think there's, there's a lot of, um, 
confusion as to like what that means. Does that mean on uh, not the way you described it, but just in general, like, does that mean it's like, these are genetic biochemical um, underpinnings of addiction that you're, that is a big part of your focus or is it something else? So, I mean, to, to be, to be sure, um, you, you know, the, the evidence is very clear that there, that there is genetic predisposition. And certainly when we're, for example, many of the patients that I treat are tribal members, mm-hmm. um, right? American Indian tribal members, Native American mm-hmm. tribal members. And, um, and we have a ton of evidence that demonstrates genetic predisposition to alcoholism in that patient population. We have, uh, you know, ample evidence in other, in other populations and subpopulations as well. And so I certainly see that we, I mean, we, we almost assume that, right. Um, but you, you, um, you're looking at the, at the individual, right? You, you know about the genetic predisposition. You certainly get that through the history. Um, but you find out through spending time with the patient and developing some, some clinical rapport with the patient, those unique circumstances that, you know, that, that, um, led them down this particular journey, Mm. right? This particular path towards addiction. And what we know uh, now, I think, um, that we, that we perhaps didn't, um, have as well defined when I first started is this notion of trauma informed care, Mm. meaning specifically that, I mean, there's some, there's some experts, quote unquote experts out there that, that would go as far as to say, um, every case of addiction is contributed to by trauma of one form or another. If you are unaware of it, it's only because you haven't looked hard enough. Mm-hmm. Right. And so, um, so having as part of your treatment team, therapists that are skilled in, in these modalities in trauma specific modalities, such as uh, eye movement desensitization, such as somatic experiencing, um, such as motivational interviewing and, and all of these, um, these evidence-based modalities that exist and, um, and are particularly effective in a population suffering from the manifestations of trauma for a lack of a better term. Mm-hmm. Right. And so, um, that, that certainly factors in on a daily basis. No, that makes a lot of sense to me. You know, I mean, here are these different philosophies on addiction, such as, you know, we, we Mm -hmm. self-medicate, we, we we're looking for a way to heal from pain, Uh, we're looking for a way to connect with a part of ourself that's been taken or been trauma, been through trauma or been violated or, you know, it, so that makes a lot of sense. Um, and it's really refreshing to know that that's included in the philosophy because, um, and I imagine that for some people, like you were saying, it's pretty obvious and for some people this is like stepping into 
a doorway that they've never opened before. That's right. That's right. And so it's incumbent upon the professionals um, that they are seeking help from to create that safe environment for them to perhaps for the very first time delve into some of that. Um, mm-hmm. And um, and the, the 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 treatment facilities that have the better outcome rates um, are adept at doing that. Yeah. And, you know, I think anybody who's listening to this podcast, you know, has probably in one shape or another been, has faced addiction either themselves or with someone who's a family member. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think there's, there's like some myths that I would love to kind of bust about, sure. you know, yeah. who you work with. And, you know, you said you work with, you know, the Native American population and, but just in a general, like people that are seeking care in addiction medicine, can you just kind of go into some of the myths of like reality versus um, some of the things that people like might perceive as who who's seeking treatment? Yeah. So um, this again, this this whole moral weakness nonsense, right? Um, not true. Um, also, this notion that abstinence is the only cure. Um, also not true, right? Um, we have, we have, um, FDA approved pharmacologic interventions that are specific to addictive disorders that we didn't have 20, 20, 30 years ago. Um, Mm -hmm. and, and, uh, and those things fit neatly under a larger umbrella heading of harm reduction. Mm-hmm. Um, we're starting to hear, you know, now this idea of, uh, you know, needle exchange programs and, and allowing individuals safe spaces to inject and providing safe syringes and needles and, um, decriminalization and, and all of these things that you, that you hear about. Um, but on the medical side, when we think of harm reduction, we think of, um, FDA approved interventions. And so for opioid use disorders, you know, we have several things. We've had methadone forever. We have buprenorphine now, um, which is, which works very well. We have, um, now trexone based therapeutics, um, that, that are, you know, effective for some people where buprenorphine and methadone may not be. And so, um, on the alcohol use disorder side, we, we also have Vivitrol. It's duly approved for opioid use disorder and alcohol, alcohol use disorder, we also have uh, a campersate sodium. You know, we had disulfiram for a really long time. Um, and these things uh, are specifically approved for addictive disorders. And so there are some people that are, that are you know, are not great candidates. I mean, yeah, is, is abstinence ideally, you know, where you want to land? Sure. Um getting individuals to that place is, um, is, is, is very challenging. And for some people, it simply boils down to a question about which is the lesser of two evils. Right. Right. Uh, letting the, putting that individual in a position to continue to endanger their life on a daily basis through injecting, um, drugs into their system or, 
providing them with FDA approved medications um, that serve as effective tools from a harm reduction strategy yeah. and a harm reduction perspective. Um, and so yeah. more and more in the conferences, you know, the, the addiction medicine conferences, um, always looking to um, better and more effective harm reduction strategies. Right, right. It makes a lot of sense, you know, from standpoint of individualized care, because like if you're if you're coming from like some type of dogma, you know, where you're, you know, having people kind of sign up for your philosophy mm-hmm. um, and, and like the failure rate must be much higher versus if you look at the person in front of you and say, you know, I want you to succeed at this in the way taking all the judgment out of the room or moral conditioning out of the room and what what's going to help this person succeed at, you know, right. this. it's kind of like playing matchmaker, right? You're, you're, you're with that individual, you know, that individual, you know, their story, you probably know what, what's worked for them in the past and what hasn't, what their triggers are, at least the ones they've identified. Um, and now you're in a position to matchmake. And by matchmaking, I mean, okay, these are the tools. You know, these, this is the toolbox. It's got three layers. It's got some drugs in there. It's got some non-drugs in there. Um, and, and here's the patient. And so utilizing that time that they're in treatment to familiarize them with those tools in the toolbox and give them the opportunity to practice using them before you set them loose. Yeah. Yeah. So going back a little bit with just how people get to you in the first place, Mm -hmm. like what, like what are, I mean, is there a, is there sort of a, a, like steps to addiction that you, you see that are kind of accepted as, you know, more universal or is it just sort of all over the map about how people become addicted? Like what, what do you generally see? So certainly, you know, certainly that, that role, that role of, of trauma uh, factors in, it could be childhood trauma. Um, it could be um, trauma that occurred later in life. It could be physical trauma. It doesn't have to be physical trauma. It could be emotional trauma. It can be, um, you know, spiritual trauma. Um, it can be things that people don't even necessarily think of as, as, as traumatic. Um, and it doesn't really matter what, what, what anybody else thinks, as long as that individual perceives it as trauma, that's all that matters. And so, um, it's, it's that it's genetic predisposition. It's, um, who they spent most of their time with as children, as adolescents, as young, young adults, it's, it's whether they, um, have had, um, secure housing for, for, for their lives. It's whether they had one or both parents or zero parents around. It's, um, whether they've encountered issues with the law and have, and have had legal consequences as a result of those things. It's whether they've had to spend time in jail or in juvenile detention facilities or, 
um, or things like this. It's how their relationships have worked out for them in life. Do they have a broken picker? Do they make good relationship decisions? You know, have they bounced around? Are they um, secure in that? Do they have some sense of spirituality? Do they, are they part of a religious community? Do they have a spiritual practice? Do they, um, you know, does everyone around them drink constantly or use constantly? Um, it's all of these things. It's any and all of these things. And, um, and for, for any given individual, um, it is a specific combination of these variables that, that ultimately leads to them finding that they are um, dependent either physiologically um, or, or psychologically or both to, to uh, one or more substances. It is um, that they would, that they're experiencing withdrawal if they stop using one or more of these substances. Um, Cause that's the, that's the nature of the beast. Addiction attacks the individual, the brain of the individual in two, two ways right? It will reward you as long as you feed it. And it will punish you if you don't. Mm -hmm. And it's doing both things simultaneously. Mm -hmm. And so, um, so they find themselves either dependent physiologically or psychologically withdrawing if they don't use these substances. Um, um, checking out of their primary relationships because it's more important to use the substance or substances, um, not going to work because it's more important to use the substance or substances than it is to hold down a job, um, finding themselves on the wrong side of their parents if they still live with their parents who are unwilling to tolerate the behavior any longer. You know, it, any or all of these things ultimately lead them in the door. This segues nicely, though, Adam, into... Your, one of your previous questions around myths. It is it is a myth that you have to be at your absolute rock bottom in order to um, be effectively treated for this disease. That is not true. Yeah. You do not need to be at your absolute rock bottom. There are plenty of people that I've treated through the years that had plenty of bottom to go um, mm -hmm. and made a conscious decision to nip it in the bud rather than wait to see what further consequences awaited them. Mm -hmm. It is also a myth that, um, that you must relapse, that relapse is a part of, of effective treatment for this disease. Also not true. There are plenty of individuals that have been one and doneers, right? They come in, they go through an effective treatment program. They never use again. Um, mm -hmm. They never relapse. So that is also, that is also a myth. Uh, another myth, um, Alcoholics Anonymous doesn't work because there are no medications involved in that. I mean, it's, it's, non it's not scientifically based. It's, it's not an evidence-based modality. Not true at all. There are plenty of people that have found their way to um, abstinence and recovery um, through nothing but the fellowship offered by um, peer support groups, 12-step groups like Alcoholics Anonymous and the like. So all of the mm -hmm. things. Yeah. 
so, okay, well, so it seems like what you pointed out was like a number of risk factors and kind of the the software that would um, put someone in a position where they're more likely to um, become addicted. Um, what about people who, you know, are generally, let's say they're, the, the trauma was there, they're going through tough times and, you know, they, they just start like having like an, like an everyday drink or mm-hmm. something like that. Like, what about just more of like a milder path to this? Mm-hmm. Like, how does that happen? It happens through things like dealing with a global pandemic, right? Okay. We, yeah. What what we saw as a result of this, and I and I should say that the, the the long term, the long tail effects of this have yet to be determined. But what we know for sure is that people that were on the fence, right, they weren't quite meeting diagnostic criteria for problem drinking or problem using. COVID comes along and pushes them squarely over the fence onto the the wrong side. Um, Mm -hmm. And and so now what we find is is a plethora of individuals who meet diagnostic criteria for a substance use disorder where they didn't before. And it's simply by virtue of the fact that they were bored, sitting at home, isolating, um, right, not being able to interact in the ways that they were uh, not being able to, to engage with their religious communities, not being able to engage with Alcoholics Anonymous, everything being virtual, if at all, um, having to be there with uh, a spouse or loved one um, that you didn't have the best relationship before COVID. Mm-hmm. And now you're with one another 24-7. Um, mm-hmm. All of these things, you know, having having legal access to alcohol, um, and in many states in the union, having legal access to marijuana, um, mm-hmm. right? COVID comes along, and that's exactly the the um, catalyst needed or required to push these individuals clearly into diagnostic criteria for a substance use disorder. Yeah, yeah, definitely seen a lot of that um, in my, you know, in my coming through my practices and some people who are, were just sort of, they, they could see it unfolding in front of their eyes Mm -hmm. and they, it was like a, it was consciously happening. And then they're having dialogues with themselves. Like, you know, I'm drinking too much or I'm seeing this happen, but, and then they, they were into it before, um, before too long. Yeah. Uh, so along those lines, like there's this confusion in a lot of circles about soft addictions that, you know, may maybe have no identifiable chemical that's like binding to any kind of receptor. So, for example, um, social media or uh, porn addiction or um, even like work addiction versus like, you know, kind of the obvious things like cocaine and alcohol and um, you know, potentially like uh, opioids and other drugs that have like a real defined biochemical receptor that when that receptor is bound, you can become addicted to that 
Um, can you compare the two? I mean, are we are we at a point where we we have um, accepted that these other addictions have like a there's like a chemical dependency? So, I mean, what you're referring to is the difference between a substance use disorder and a, and a process disorder. Process okay. disorders are like you know shopping addiction and gambling addiction and you know sex addiction and um, social media addiction and the like uh, versus substance use disorders, which um, which are you know all the other things, all the things that we typically think about when we think of the word addiction. Um, what I can tell you is that. Yes, while it is true that you're not taking in an exogenous substance that's binding a you know a bio a, a, a particular receptor uh, in your central nervous system or peripheral nervous system and causing a particular reaction um, in the brain's reward center. If I were to you know cut an individual in half. And, and and look at what was going on in that reward center while they were engaged in um, a, a process disorder. Let's call it uh, gambling. Yeah. Um, or what happens in that reward center from the very first cue that triggers that individual that precedes the use of a particular substance all the way through the use of the substance and thereafter um in the brain it's it's indistinguishable in the reward center it's indistinguishable and so um and so while you are not taking an opioid in or cocaine in or, or or one of these things in you are still your the behavior is still being rewarded by the by the endogenous neurotransmitters in the reward center namely dopamine so so you are the behavior is being reinforced by virtue of the fact that the um that dopamine is being released in the reward center um of the brain the dopamine is 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 playing a role there um to reinforce that particular behavior and so those things, that part, in that part of the brain, in the reward center, it's, it's indistinguishable whether it's a process disorder or a substance use disorder, um, and they are being reinforced. The behavior is being reinforced the same way. Mm, interesting, and like, uh, their withdrawal effects happen as well. With very interesting question, we used to think that um, um, that process disorders could not possibly have a clinical withdrawal syndrome. But what we're finding is that there is a withdrawal syndrome. It just doesn't look the same as it does for opioids and alcohol and benzodiazepines, et cetera, uh, which are far more obvious uh, and physical mm -hmm. in nature. So, um, you know, but, but certainly there is something going on um, when the behavior is discontinued that that made look more subtle but would look like uh depressed mood or anhedonia and uh, you know uh disinterest in doing things that you previously were interested in doing outside of the process disorder um those things are are very common and i think uh from my perspective 
would qualify as a legitimate withdrawal syndrome, even though they're not as physical or obvious in nature. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's very helpful for people to know, especially, you know, we're kind of moving into an era where in some circles, you know, people are starting to, you know, experiment with all kinds of drugs um, because of, I think there's like a certain social culture, sociocultural movement um, where, you know, they're, they're pushing for like just responsible use of recreational drugs and kind of understanding the drug and how to support your body if you're going to use it. Mm-hmm. Um, I think from my generation, that just feels like a slippery slope. Um, and, and for the younger generation, um, a lot of people really buy into that. Mm-hmm. Um, like, you know, like say like, you know, people in their twenties or teens, uh, I don't expect you to give me your opinion one way or the other, but any thoughts on that? Cause like that, that is a big topic, especially with like psychedelic mushrooms and mm-hmm. uh, marijuana uh, is like just you using the drug responsibly and that that is a way to prevent from harm um, or preventing from addiction. Any thoughts on that? Yeah. I mean, it's, you know, what, what immediately came to mind when you started talking was when, when, um, um, What's the name of this? I can't remember the name of the musician, but she went to treatment and um, came out of treatment and began using alcohol and cannabis again and called it being California sober. Right. Okay. Right. Uh, Sure. I'm sober. I'm just California sober. You know, I drink a little and I, and I smoke a little. Um, And, and the notion of that for me, especially for an individual that has has required professional intervention uh, at an inpatient level to treat this is 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 ridiculous. Um, to your to your question specifically, we we don't know squat about the brain. We know very very little about it. But what we do know is that it's still developing well into early adulthood, and. And that is a fact that is that it is still developing into early adulthood, like 20, 22, 23, 24, 25. And that if it is exposed to these substances during that developmental phase, um, it's like taking it's like a crap shot. For some individuals, it'll they'll be perfectly fine. Uh, for other individuals, however, uh, it may result in in like a, almost a semi permanent to permanent psychosis. Mm-hmm. And um, it, the same thing it applies to psychedelics. It applies. People think it doesn't apply to, to marijuana. The fact of the matter is that the industry that is this the the, the cannabis industry in this country is investing millions, if not billions of dollars into figuring out how to create the next awesome product, how to maximize potency, how to create ever more potent consumables. And by virtue of the fact that, that what that, what that, what that, 
amounts to on a quantitative basis is people consuming cannabis products that are upwards of 80% concentrated THC. And for a developing brain that, that lives in a, a state that happens to, a, to, to have a medical marijuana statute on the books and an adult recreational use statute on the books where, hey, why not? It's legal. That may be the worst mis- – that may be the one and simultaneously the worst decision that that particular individual makes, makes in their life. Um, I've, I've seen yeah. it time and time again where you know, a, a, a young kid grows up in a fantastic family, supportive parents, both parents around, um, access to, to everything they need in order to be successful in life happens to live in, in a state where, uh, where they can purchase marijuana legally, gets one of these concentrates, dab, wax, shatter, whatever it is, right? Psychotic episode, never quite the same again. Mm-hmm. And you just don't know. There's no way to predict yeah. it, right? And so, and so it's a, it's a crap shot. Yeah, good point. Yeah, that's that's really well said. And I'm glad you pointed that out because, you know, it's almost becoming like a script with certain things of just like, well, we think this is safe or we think this, you know, instead of balanced views of pointing, continuing to point out the pros and cons of all of of the use of even CPD, mm-hmm. THC products and and to really continue to have that conversation and not get lazy about it just because it's legal now in certain states. Legal does um, not mean safe. Right, right. That's uh, that's really a, a wonderful point. Thanks for answering that question. I know um, it's, uh, yeah, I think we're, we're entering into an era where the lines are starting to blur and, uh, if we're already there, I mean, it's not, not entering. Um, well, I, I think, you know, after talking to you, you know, you kind of, you, you come across as such like a, like a very human down to earth person and like able to hold a space for people. And you really come across that way. I can see why you're successful at what you do. Um, and you're a caregiver, right? For a lot of people, how do you, if you're speaking to like caregivers or friends and family members of someone who's dealing with addiction, like how, how should they take care of themselves? Like, and just how, how to withstand it? Because um, there's, there's a certain kind of, they're along for the ride with this and it, it, it can be, um, even as a healthcare provider, I imagine it's just um, some some heart wrenching experiences. Like, how do you take care of yourself and deal with that? So, I mean, it's a great question, and I think the healthcare field as a whole is terrible at self care. And this notion of you know, provider heal thyself, physician heal thyself. Um, I think we do a horrible job of it as as a you know a profession. Um, mm-hmm. And I think we do a particularly horrible job of it in behavioral health. 
where mm-hmm. we probably should be doing the best job of all. Um, mm. I learned a long time ago not to take anything home with me um, and to leave it leave it at work. Um, and and so my bound my boundaries have to be secure, right? And 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 solid um, because you hear the most gut wrenching stories day in and day out, and um, and it's and, and there's a difference between empathizing with that individual and, and kind of taking taking that on. And so um, I, I learned that uh, early on. My mentors were particularly useful in, in kind of guiding me and helping me navigate those early years in the profession. Um, for family members, there are fantastic resources that I don't think enough family members take advantage of, namely Al-Anon or PALS. Al-Anon is a great group of, of individuals, um, family members who are dealing with a family member or multiple family members who uh, are in the grips of addiction or alcoholism. And, um, and I don't think this is a resource that's taken advantage of nearly as frequently as it should be. Additionally, um, PALS um, is, is another one of these groups, you know, um, uh, where again, it's a, it's a like-minded group of individuals um, who who have basically formed their own support community, right? So that w- as as fam as 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 individuals, um, they can find refuge and solace in the act of being of service to another individual or family member who's going through a similar, a similar battle or a similar time. Um, interventionists, professional interventionists have a different way of looking at it. They say that, yes, you should have solid boundaries. It's, it's, it's far more challenging to have those boundaries when you're, when this issue is going on in your home. Uh, with a loved one with whom you are emotionally intertwined and entangled. Um, but even then, you must have a line in the sand. Mm-hmm. And, and you, don't have to, you don't have to necessarily verbalize that line in the sand, although, although you know, in the interest of transparency – with your loved one who is battling disease, uh, it would probably behoove them to understand what that line is at some point. Whether they choose to adhere to that or not is is a different story altogether. But there has to be a line, and 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 if that line is crossed, you have to be prepared to leverage consequences that you have previously not been able to do for any of a variety mm. of reasons, up to and including cutting that individual off altogether, financially, emotionally, and otherwise. Um, mm. The issue is codependency. Uh, there are fantastic books out there on the topic. One in particular called Codependent No More um, mm-hmm. is a great resource that I, that I you know, recommend to, to family members all the time. Additionally, as family members, you should be seeking your own professional therapists. Mm-hmm. And have your own treatment team, just as you have provided the resources by which your loved one could have their own dedicated treatment team. You too deserve that. 
Um, mm-hmm. And that individual or individuals will work with you on uh, defining some of these things for you. Uh, defining what that line in the sand is if you haven't really thought about it. Um, you, you know, kind of even acting out a scenario where you would have to probably for the very first time verbalize that line in the sand and verbalize the consequences that you're prepared to leverage on that individual Um, Mm -hmm. and acting out, coaching you through the act of being accountable to those consequences. Right. Right. And so, um, and being accountable to yourself. Mm-hmm. And um, so there's there's a there's a plethora of resources and tools out there. Um, I find it particularly effective to seek out treatment facilities that have a defined family therapy unit or module. Some people have a family weekend. Uh, some people for some some facilities every weekend is family weekend. Other facilities have a family week where during the course of a week they house the loved ones um, of the of the afflicted individual um, and spend a week, some of which is spent doing you know, working with that individual in treatment. And some of some of that time is spent working um, with the family members as individuals, um, again, um, to assist them in preparing themselves to define boundaries and hold boundaries. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, very helpful. Yeah. I mean, I think it's, it's, it's really good to hear like a framework and to kind of understand that, you know, that the caregiver has to have a plan for themselves as well. Like, and, mm-hmm. you know, just kind of being along for the ride in this journey without any kind of structure, um, in itself is, you know, just like a harrowing journey, like it's to traumatic. have that. Yeah. It's, it's yeah. trauma, right? And, and, and it's trauma. And, um, and so untreated trauma results in PTSD, mm-hmm. right? Untreated trauma results in, 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 in many cases, maybe not every case, but in, in many cases, um, post-traumatic stress disorder, which is a whole different a- animal. So, um, mm-hmm. but yes, I absolutely am of the, of, am of the opinion that the family members of individuals afflicted with substance use disorders are traumatized mm-hmm. and victims of trauma. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, so yeah, I think, you know, it'd be really great to, kind of have another session at some time to talk about like the, like a dive into like the treatments that you do sure. and, Happy to. and you know, could get into that. And I would love to kind of close hearing about the um, IAM mm-hmm. and yeah, just kind so, of share with sure. us what that is. And yeah. Um, I, I pioneered and, and founded um Integrative Addiction Medicine. Um, IM stands for Integrative Addiction Medicine. And so very early on in my career, um, I determined that 
again, as I was dealing with the multifactorial disease process that in my opinion and by virtue of my training was best managed with a multifaceted treatment strategy um, and determining what the elements of that, what the optimal elements of that strategy would look like. Um, I, I basically took the very best that was available from, from conventional, right, time-tested, protocol-derived uh, addiction medicine practice and evidence-based complementary and alternative medicine, functional medicine, integrative medicine, and merge them together to form integrative addiction medicine. Um, and, you know, perhaps during a subsequent conversation, we can talk, we can talk about the different modalities, but effectively it's, it's what, it's what I it's how I was taught to practice. It's how I was trained. And so yes. there is a hierarchy of therapeutics and, the, the the very nature of the patient population that we're dealing with have ingested known toxins over a period of years, if not decades. By, by virtue of that, if we accept that that is fact, then the logical next step is, in thinking is, okay, then their organs of elimination are more burdened than the average person's, right? Their livers have had to work harder. Their kidneys have had to work harder. Their uh, GI systems have had to work harder. Their skin has had to work harder. Their lungs have had to work harder than the average person's. Why in the world would it be, right, across the board, best practice to throw a bunch of drugs at these individuals when we know that those very same drugs even though they're legal and fda approved must go through the very same systems of elimination organs of elimination that are already taxed and burdened more so than the average person mm -hmm. instead we don't discount the value of those things but we offer as many non-pharmacologic interventions as we can simultaneously or in lieu of, if that's possible, um, <laughs> acupuncture, massage therapy, other kinds of body work, steam and sauna therapeutics, hydrotherapy, uh, chiropractic, uh, exercise therapy, uh, therapeutic nutrition, I can go on and on and on. You know, you know the you know the list the same as I do. Yeah. And so, um, so that is integrative addiction medicine. Integrative addiction medicine is is meeting the individual where they are, recognizing them as a whole person, not a not a, a not components. Um, individualizing your treatment plan based on your a, a thorough assessment and understanding of that individual's unique circumstances, leveraging laboratory data, objective data, where and when possible in arriving at a customized treatment plan that does not prioritize pharmacologic intervention over anything else. Mm -hmm. Love it. Yeah. I mean, in your, your teaching, you're teaching your patients along the way, I'm sure how to like care for themselves and 
like love their body in a way that they never have maybe, or just at least understand how their body works. Exactly right. Exactly right. In many cases, you're dealing with individuals who have never had the mentors, have never had parents around, have never had anybody to actually teach them to do that. Um, Mm -hmm. And so you're doing it for the very first time. You're playing the role, uh, if you will, of of, um, step-parent, right? Mm -hmm. Um, This is how you cook for yourself. This is how you do laundry. This is how you... um, balance a checkbook this is how you shop at a grocery store then things that that they've never been taught they've only yeah they've only been um you know their their role models for lack of a better word have been expert at teaching them the wrong things to do right like self-harm yeah yeah wow that's that's powerful stuff so is there like a certification program you're you're offering to providers or is it sort of just like a framework of um, practice that you're teaching others? Uh, at the moment, it's a framework of practice and due course, it will, um, it will look a little more formalized, meaning that there will be an authoritative, authoritative textbook and that that authoritative textbook um, will, will pave the way for um for some CMEs from for some specific CME offerings and those CME offerings may or may not lead to a certification pathway. Um, not entirely sure um, if I want to go that direction or not only because the ASAMs of the world kind of um, own that space, right? Mm-hmm. And the joint commissions of the world kind of own that space. Uh, and it may be enough for me and ambitious enough for me to just get my thoughts on paper and, and, um, and, and teach the core concepts to individuals that are interested. That makes sense. Yeah. So how do people follow your work or come see you or your team? Um, you know, if they need help. Um, they're always welcome to email me. Um, at the moment, I'm with an I'm with an organization out of Arizona um, called Soul Surgery. I, I've been here for some time, um, you know. So at the moment, I can be I can be reached here, um, but you know, you you have my email, Adam, and my cell phone number. Um, if you you're more than welcome to share those to your listening audience. Um, and if, if they're so inclined, they can reach out. The other thing I, the other thing that I would say is that if I'm, if I'm not in a position to help them specifically, um, I, I have the resources and team members, um, that will go above and beyond to find them the best resource for their specific needs and circumstances. Excellent. Um, I'm not. I'm not the best fit for everyone, and and I would be. Uh, it would be hubris for me to think that. Excellent. Great. Um, any closing thoughts um, or kind of take home messages you want to share before we wrap up? This has been great. So, if you don't have any, you've given us plenty to think about. So, but if you have anything that you want to kind of leave us with to think about, um, that'd be. Well, I mean, I, pre- I appreciate your bringing this this really important 
um, topic to your listening audience. Um, this is if, if, if there are people out there, I would be hard pressed to believe it, but if there are people out there that have not been individually affected by this disease to date, you can be fairly certain that you will at some point mm-hmm. down the road. Um, it's, uh, it, this disease does not discriminate. Um, you know, by virtue of socioeconomic class, um, or, or anything else. Um, and it is something that is going to dominate the news cycle, uh, for years to come, particularly given that we, um, have not yet begun to see the longitudinal effects of COVID. Um, we're not entirely sure what we have left to see, what, what's coming down the, down the pipe. Um, yeah. And I think what we what we'll see is uh, more mental health issues, more substance use disorder issues, more process disorders, um, meaning that the the resources that already exist will be taxed, creating a need for more resources and better resources mm-hmm. and more effective resources. And so. Um, so uh, we have a long, a long journey ahead of us, and we need as many people fighting the good fight as possible. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, that is very helpful. Uh, this has just been an awesome conversation. So thank you so much for your time. Uh, lots to think about here, and I look forward to kind of meeting up with you at some time down the road and talking more about the kind of treatments you do and just anything else we can cover during a future discussion. Sounds great, Adam. Thanks again. I appreciate your time and and you're doing a great job. Thanks for doing this. You're you're welcome, Dr. Ravi. And uh, thanks. Yeah. Thanks for being here. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thank you so much for tuning into this week's episode of the one thing podcast. Please share these episodes with your friends, loved ones, colleagues, patients, healthcare providers, anyone who you feel might benefit from hearing these informative interviews. We tend to learn best from people sharing things with us. That's often the first time it's introduced. So don't hesitate if these the content of these episodes reminded you of someone that might benefit from it. Forward the, the episode to them and I'm sure they'll either appreciate it or be appreciative that you've thought of them. So once again, we'll look forward to seeing you next episode on the One Thing Podcast. And again, much appreciation for you being here with me.